Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters. Hello and welcome to Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale. I'm Fiona Larkham and I'm the team's professional support lawyer. I'm joined by Robin Barnes, who is one of our planning specialists. Our conversation today is about biodiversity net gain and how the government wants to use private development to deliver some of its green ambitions. Robin, the concept of biodiversity net gain arises from the Environment Bill. Can you tell us why the bill is so significant and where it is on its parliamentary journey? Hi Fiona, yes. Well, the government has promised us a green Brexit and this, I suppose, is our first chance to really see what the future standards on environmental protection are going to be and which direction our government wants to take us in. The whole point of the bill was to put this duty to enhance biodiversity at the heart of policy in England and Wales. And this concept of biodiversity net gain is, is the main way they intend to introduce this. Progress has been excruciatingly slow in respect of the legislation itself. Consultation on the concept was undertaken back in 2018. And we've been expecting the bill to hit the statute books for a while now. Last month, the bill was at the Lord's report stage, when usually minor amendments are voted on, with the anticipation that the bill shall become statute before 2021 is out. These delays have caused some conspiratorial stirrings that the elements of the government are reluctant to accept some of the more stringent aspects of the bill. However, it seems to me that the bill is just somewhat disjointed and it contains a lot of unrelated environmental elements with various different targets needing to be negotiated. And legal commentators and academics have, have felt that elements of the bill talk a lot about environmental ambition, but it's actually unenforceable and creates legal uncertainty. Right. Well, to perhaps put a little bit of certainty on things where we can, can you tell us what the government means when it refers to biodiversity net gain? Well, the idea is to achieve an overall increase in biodiversity at any particular development site. This will be achieved by an ongoing condition in the planning approval, guaranteed for a period of at least 30 years. This will require that the biodiversity of the developed site must exceed that of the undeveloped site by 10%. This relies on being able to work out how exactly a site can be improved by 10%, and DEFRA have come up with various metrics to enable us to do this. This all sounds straightforward enough, and it sounds all well and good if you can quantify the net gain, but commentators have been quick to note that it's very easy and inexpensive to improve the biodiversity of a former brownfield site, a former factory, or, or you know something that's essentially rubble and concrete. Increasing the biodiversity of that by 10% is very easy, but improving the biodiversity of a greenfield site is disproportionately expensive and actually quite difficult. So some of these metrics may require some recalibrating. One thing that people are definitely going to be asking is how the proposed policy is different from what we have in place at present. Well, existing policy does require local planning authorities to minimise impacts on and provide net gains for biodiversity, but these aren't enforced in the long term generally. So this isn't to say that developers have been getting away lightly. Most local plans I come across do require a far higher level of consideration of biodiversity than they ever did before. They usually do require the developers to at least leave the place in a better position than when they found it. 
However, most of the measures were usually fairly short-term in nature. The only long-term nods tend to be in the form of the odd planning condition to say, require a developer to plant trees and then replace these if they were to die within five years. In my day-to-day, you don't see much more than this. Um, Once the developers, for instance, built their attenuation pond to look after the newts, that's effectively them done. So we're looking at potentially some quite big changes. And assuming that the current proposals become law, how are they going to be implemented? The aim is for local planning authorities to produce biodiversity game plans, which will designate the biodiversity of specific areas, outlining how that can be improved. However, I feel like there should be an asterisk next to this because, to me, this idea and this policy seems to fit very nicely alongside what was meant to be a wider move towards a more zonal planning system in England and Wales. These wider moves towards zonal planning seem to have been kicked into the long grass recently with the newly appointed Secretary of State for levelling up houses and communities, Michael Gove, halting any proposed changes in certainly in the short term. In terms of the actual process, developers will be required to submit proposals of how the net gain will be achieved as part of their planning application. These shall be managed not just by ongoing planning conditions, But it is also anticipated that a local planning authority will use conservation covenants, which are also being introduced by the bill. The idea of these is to ensure that a promised gain is actually realised, and these covenants will be registered against the title of the property and move us into a, a more regimented system for legally binding private agreements between a conservation body and a landowner. The benefit of these covenants is that they will then run with the land. They don't just bind the current landowner and therefore they're going to bind future landowners as well. When it comes to matters of enforcement, this will entail setting up a new Office for Environmental Protection. And this is going to be a a new role in the UK, replacing a role that was previously taken by the European Commission as part of our membership of the EU. This Office for Environmental Protection, this will deal with the consideration of complaints, carrying out investigations and following this, bringing any proceedings for environmental review or possibly judicial review as well. So if we just go back for a minute to the role of local planning authorities, is what you're saying, does it all mean that we're going to start seeing biodiversity as a factor where a local planning authority is going to have to make a decision between competing schemes? Yeah, indeed. So it's anticipated that a scheme that is is better in terms of its biodiversity, shall have preferential treatment over those that do not. This seems to only relate to different schemes at the same site, however, whereby, you know, a a local planning authority will establish a hierarchy of developments that they would wish to see. This also signals that biodiversity shall be a more important material consideration in decisions than it was ever previously. You touched earlier on the obvious problem with some sites where it's going to be difficult to achieve a 10% net gain. What's going to happen if a developer just can't do that on a particular site? Well, yes, there's going to be plenty of cases where it's simply impossible to make up that 10% gain, whether that's due to constraints on the area of land being developed. Basically, any site in the city, this is probably going to apply. Where it's impossible to achieve that 10% gain, A developer will have to purchase credits that the local planning authority can use to ensure that that net gain can be realised somewhere else. 
We've seen a similar approach taken in relation to affordable housing contributions, where the developer provides a contribution towards off-site affordable housing. And this has led to some criticism that a developer can, say, build out a very expensive scheme in Knightsbridge with no affordable housing and then provide you know, a whole bunch of affordable housing somewhere where it's much cheaper for them to do so. Clearly, this goes against the whole point of affordable housing and the idea of trying to have developments with a mix of tenures and a mix of people living in them. And I think there's a risk that we could end up with a similar situation here, whereby developments may bring a net 10% gain overall, with that being achieved off-site, but the development itself is actually fundamentally damaging to the biodiversity around it. And are any types of development going to be exempt completely? It's not completely clear at the moment what development shall be exempt from the biodiversity net gain requirements. We assume that there will be some exceptions. You'd certainly expect so in respect of permitted development or minor householder applications. However, this is an area that it's going to have to be detailed in secondary legislation. And of course, that's just going to push things further back. It's going to be even longer until we actually see these measures actually being enforced by local planning authorities. Well, that brings me on to the, what was going to be my next question, which is how soon people can expect to see this in force and affecting developments. Well, yes, it's, uh, it's already late. However, due to some of the kind of unenforceable elements of the bill and the issues that require this secondary legislation, it's clear that further legislation is going to be needed until any of these measures are actually properly workable, which means that the regime is not expected to be implemented until about 2023. That suggests to me then that developers are potentially in a period of limbo. So just as a final question, Robin, have you got any advice on what developers should be doing now to make sure they are prepared for what is likely to be coming? Yes, I think developers who are acquiring sites now, they're going to need to factor in these additional obligations from the get-go when undertaking their initial site appraisals, for instance. So for me, the key thing for developers to be looking at is whether a potential site can be developed easily in respect of biodiversity. Can the gain be made easily or you know, is it already a biodiverse site? Or is the developer going to have to buy credits instead, which undoubtedly is going to be a more punitive taxation basically instead? Well, Robin, thank you very much for giving us that insight into the whole world of biodiversity net gain. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks for listening to Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale. I hope you'll be able to join us again next time. Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters.